All right, if you have a Bible, Matthew 25, Matthew 25, as we announced, or I announced, um, and as we already did kind of at least one lesson, um, we are going to be this coming year following the liturgical calendar, uh, following the lectionary. Um, that's always, you know, as we did it before, we found it, I mean, I, I, I think that it was pretty important that we did it because we ended up having a massive theological crises and change uh, doing it last time as we um, found ourselves in Jeremiah. We, we changed our whole view on covenant theology and I think it was important because once again going through the lectionary we're forced to deal with whatever the text is given to us for that day. Like I don't have any choice in the matter, right? If that's the text there, I have to deal with it. Um, I may have a choice in which reading we look at, but I, it, it, it at least it challenges me, and I find it that to be fun, where I'm not getting to choose the text, the text is chosen for me, and then it's my job to figure out what to do with it, because sometimes you don't know what to do with it. So we're going to be following the liturgical calendar, we're going to be following the lectionary all of 2024. So the best way to begin that journey is to really go to the end, and the end is today. Because today is the last Sunday of the church year. Next Sunday will be the beginning of a new church year. Next Sunday will be the first Sunday of Advent, which begins a whole new church year. But this, today, is the last Sunday of the church year. And what is this day called sometimes? All right, Christ the King Sunday. Some, some will refer to it as the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe. So this is about the Jesus being king. That's what it's about. The first reading today, we're not, we're not going to go through all of them. I'll just mention them right now. Um, I would, you know, we could, we could spend this entire hour working on it. But the first reading today is Ezekiel 34, 11 through 12 and 15 through 17. We will not read that right now. Uh, the response of Psalm today is Psalm 23. The, for the epistle reading is a reading from the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, Corinthians chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 26 and verse 28. We could work on all of that. But as I've already told you where to turn, we're going to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. Now, one of, my, one of the most difficult parts of lectionary preaching as I mentioned before, uh, when we went through this a, a couple of years ago, is I, I personally don't even know how it's humanly possible, but in churches that follow the lectionary, they grab one of the readings and they do a 15 to 20 minute homily, and I don't even know how that's humanly possible. Because I don't even know if we could fix Matthew 25 if we spent the next 13 years on it, because it is so many issues. So for the first hour, what we're going to do is we're going to just spend some time with some preliminary thoughts. We're going to read the text and just start asking a lot of questions, maybe doing some observational work, and then we'll see what we can do in the next hour. So you ready? Let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Let's start in verse 31. As we, in a sense, begin a new church year at the end of the previous one. All right, here we go. Matthew chapter 25, let's start verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. 
I want to stop right there and just start trying to teach, but we'll just skip it and keep, we'll keep going, all right? Verse 32, and before him, that's before Christ, before the Son of Man, shall be gathered all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was an hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, um, and ye came unto me. Okay, we had a notification on the, on the laptop. I'm like, oh, oh, it's closing. It's shutting down. Don't do that. All right. So let's go back through this again. Verse 30 of uh, 5. For I was hungry and you gave me uh, food or meat. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. And naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him saying, Lord, when saw we thee unhungered and fed thee or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and, uh, and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Insomuch as you have done it unto one of the least of the, these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and the angels." For I was hungered, and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not, you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee and hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, insomuch as you did it not to the one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall he, then shall, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. All right. Now, if we were to summarize this section, we could immediately say this is a section that deals with what subject? Judgment. Would that be fair? Can we all agree that this is a judgment? Yeah. All right. So it's a, it's a passage about judgment. What is the first thing that jumps off the page that probably should bother us to some level, or at least begin to raise some theological flags that we know we're in trouble? Yes, this is all a judgment based solely on what, it, on, on what you do or don't do, right? You got to do something to get eternal life. And if you don't do it, you get everlasting punishment. What's the exact words when it describes the punishment there? Everlasting punishment. So this is a word. So it is a, or everlasting fire. This is a, I want to make sure we understand. This is a passage about judgment that seems to be based solely on what you do or don't do. 
with eternal consequences. So immediately we know we got, we got to figure this out. We got to figure this out. We got to figure this out. So let's do this. Before we start making some observations on the passage and start doing some work, let me give you at least, I think I can break these down into basically three basic ways into understanding this. Maybe I'll break it down into four. Let's go through this. You ready? All right, here is interpretation number one, all right? That this judgment is past and it occurred, when do you think? 70 AD, yes. This is a judgment that occurred in 70 AD that somehow, and what happened in 70 AD was a separation, and for those who did good, they were spared, and for those who did bad, they suffered. I don't know exactly how you may make that fit 70 AD. There's just major issues with trying to make that work in my estimation. You can tell me what you think. I, I mean, if, you were, if we were going to say 70 AD... Right? I mean, just think about it. If we were going to say this is 70 AD, when we think about what happened on, in 70 AD, who, who was judged? Israel. Israel suffered. So is Israel suffering because of what they did to Christ? But the text says... Yeah, well, so could you argue that those who died in, in the... Uh, the Siege of the city. Those are the ones who went to everlasting fire. I don't, I don't know. I have a hard time trying to make it work, right? And, 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 and the whole point is Jesus says, not what you've done to me, but what you've done to the least of my brethren, right? So, and if we think brethren are his fellow Jews, then why would Israel be like, I, I don't know how you make that work. I Trying to make this 70 AD, I would have to do I need, I would need some serious hours of reading their best explanation to see if I could even wrap my mind around it. But that, that would, that would be, that would still be a couple of years away from even trying to, even thinking about embracing it. I would need years just trying to understand the argument for it. So that's view number one. It's a past judgment, 70 AD. All right. Here's a second approach. The second approach is that's a future judgment. But it's a future judgment on the apostles. Which once again would have some major problems, right? Okay. Now, the reason they... Let's just do this. If you look at Matthew 25, right? Can you establish who Jesus is telling this to? Who he is speaking to? Who is his audience in Matthew 25? Let's see if you can figure it out. Well, at least try this. And I don't want to start all the observational work now, but we'll at least try this. Can you determine who the audience is in Matthew 25? Is, this, is Matthew 25 a part of what is known as the Olivet Discourse? His disciples. All right, so Jesus is talking to his disciples. All right, okay. So the argument is, this is to the disciples, and they're going to be what? The future leaders of the church. And as the future leaders of the church, what do they have a responsibility to do? To care for people, right? 
And so that this is judging how they, as leaders of the early church, will take care of the least of his brethren. Now, the only problem with that is, now, now this, at least I know not all Catholics interpret it this way, but I know this is a somewhat of a Catholic interpretation to say this is a judgment upon the apostles. I know at least a, a couple of Catholic sources who would say that. They probably wouldn't have a problem then with someone who was an apostle ultimately ending up in hell. Because within Catholicism, anyone... Yeah, right. They weren't doing the right thing, right? So, so that would make sense within a Catholic theological system, right? Doesn't work for us because there's no way we're going to believe an apostle then can just lose their salvation, right? So we would, have, we would have a problem with it. But so they just say, hey, it's a judgment upon the apostles. We can learn from it that we're supposed to care for people. But this is Jesus warning the leaders of the early church, the apostles, the apostolic church, hey, you better take care of people. And that, that when you get to Acts, what do they do? They're taking care of the widows, right? So that, that, that this, that's what this is about. I can understand that argument, but it has some serious theological implications that the apostles themselves could end up in hell, right? So that, that obviously would have to believe you can lose your salvation. Does that make sense? All right. So what's view number one? 70 AD. Okay, already happened. So, so and, 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 and you know the good thing about that. If you say it already happened, you don't really have to offer much of an explanation, right? And you're just like, hey, it's already happened. We don't need to worry about it. You know, you don't really need to figure it out. But it's just, I just, I can't, I can't wrap my mind on how that works. The future for the apostles is kind of good, right? Because at least it just stops, you don't have to worry about yourself, right? right? That's a good thing, right? right? The third view would put it future, and it would be a judgment upon the nations or upon certain, how we'll call it, people groups, ethnic groups. And that somehow, basically what this is going to happen is that this is going to be a judgment upon certain groups, certain people groups, or certain nations, depending on how you want to define that term. And it's going to be dependent on how they treated Israel, how they treated Israel. Listen, like Jesus, when he says brethren, he's referencing his ethnic, his, his fellow Jews, right? Everybody got that? So it's a future judgment upon people, groups, or nations and how they treat Israel. Everybody understand that? All right, so what's view number one? 70 AD. Number two, the apostles. Number three, future against nations, people, groups, and how they treat Israel. Now, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this no matter which way you go, you're going to have that. You're going to have some questions, right? Because this one's discussed so many issues. All right, what could, Stephen kind of alluded to a fourth possible view. I, I wasn't even thinking about it, but Stephen kind of just brought it up. We could argue that when Jesus says the least of my brethren, he's referencing believers. So maybe this will be a judgment against people, groups, and nations and how they treated believers. All right, right? That, that, that could be a good way to do it. Right? Let's just throw that one in there. It can't hurt, right? Hey, the more hypotheses that we come up with, the more we have to test, all right? So number one, 
already done 70 AD. Number two, future, but for the apostles only. Number three, for people groups, it's future. It's going to be a judgment against people groups, nations, and how they treat Israel. Number four, it's going to be future, and it's a judgment upon people groups or nations and how they treat Christians. And then what could be the last possible way of understanding it? This is just a future judgment for every individual that's somehow based on works. And then how do we get around that? Now, you got, now so, if it, so let's go to this last one. This last one is number five, right? Okay, so let's go with number five. Five is future, it's just for everyone, and it's a judgment on everyone based on works. It's like a final judgment on everyone based off works. All right, there are two ways to handle a works-based judgment. And we've talked about this because anytime the Bible mentions judgment, it's almost always based off works. There's no way to get around that. It's almost always based off works, right? So let's just say... Hypothetically, there is a future judgment for everyone that's based off works. You have two options in how to understand it. What are those two options? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll do this. We'll have a, we'll go, we'll go with three possible ways to handle it, okay? That if there is a future works-based system, it's a works-based, or if it's a judgment based off works, then the works will simply determine the rewards you receive or the rewards you lose. It's a rewards-based system, all right? The only problem with that is, yeah, it seems to be eternal life for hell. He doesn't be talking about rewards here. So that one doesn't really work here, but we'll throw it as a you know, hypothesis, but I don't think that one really works here, all right? What's the second way of handling a judgment that's based off works? Oh, come on, y'all should know this one, okay? Y'all should know this one really good. Hang on, hang on. Let me dramatically put the book up right here for you, okay? No. There you go. All right. You're going to be judged according to your works because your works will prove that you're saved. So when you get to the end, God can look at your works and go, look, your works prove you're saved. Okay, now what's the problem with that? Our works, uh, if you're going to judge my works to prove I'm, I'm saved, what's the standard in which my works would be judged? The law. And the law demands perfection. So the only way my works could prove that I'm saved is I would have, would have what kind of works? Perfect. Therefore, if you're going to go with that theory, which for those listening online don't know what book I held up, I held up the Gospel According to Jesus by John MacArthur because this is the go-to argument. And, and look, most Christians we know are going to go with MacArthur's view, Right? But then don't ever think about it. If you're going to go with that view, well, then nobody's getting into heaven. Does everyone understand that? Every single person would go to hell because your works would demonstrate that you're lost because they can't measure up to the standard for which God tells your works to be measured by, which is perfection, right? So I don't know why they're like, your works will prove you're saved. But I mean, they don't have to be perfect. Well, then how can my imperfect works prove that I'm saved? Like, that just makes no sense. And they can never tell you how many you need, can they? No, no, it's, it's just some arbitrary thing. I, I guess you're good to go. You're good to go. Like, that's so, 
which then ultimately you just, it makes it meaningless in the first place, right? So that doesn't work, all right? So we have, if, if it's based off works, you can try to make it about rewards, but that doesn't fit Matthew 25. You can make it about proving your salvation, and what's the third thing? The third way of approaching it. And this is our whole long gospel. That, you're, that God is going to judge us according to works, and which works are ours. The works of Christ is imputed to our account, so God can say, enter in that good and faithful servant, well done, because I am covered in the works of Christ. Right? That's, the, that's the only other way to look at it. All right? Now the problem is, that's still difficult because the language here seems so odd from other judgment passages. All right? So, are you ready to jump in and let's see what we can find? That's kind of a basic outline of all the different approaches. So let's go through them again. Number one, 70 AD. And that makes absolutely no sense to me. Number two, the apostles. The, the, to believe that, you have to believe that apostles could possibly end up in hell. All right? That's kind of problematic. Number three, future judgment on the nations based on how they treated Israel. Number four, how they treat believers. Number five, future judgment on everyone based off works. And then your ways of looking at that is somehow a reward system. Number two, proof salvation. Or number three, it demands works and we're covered by those works because Christ's works have been imputed to our account. Those are your options. Are any of them very good? (laughs) Not really, all right? Are you ready to start working through this? Okay, let's do this. Okay, well, maybe. Even that's not perfect because the language here, the language here is so weird. All right, so let's do this. Matthew 25, obviously, is a part of what we sometimes refer to as the Olivet Discourse, right? Because Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. Please note chapter 24, verse 3. As he's sitting upon the Mount of Olives, his disciples come to him, right? Because Jesus has talked about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. You see why some people want to try to make Matthew 25 about 70 AD? You can understand why they would want to, all right? Well, we know he talks... A lot, and we do believe a good portion of 24 is directly related to what? 70 AD. We have no, we have no problem acknowledging that. So he talks about all of that. Then, if you get to... Uh, I see, kind of where does he start here? Okay, if you go to chapter 24, verse 37... I'll go to verse 36. He kind of starts changing uh, the tone here a little bit, right? Because he starts saying things like this. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So he tries to liken, he, he tries to compare the coming of the Son of Man to the days of Noah. Now a lot of people get into caught up in a lot of specific things about this, but it's very specific what he's referring to, right? Go look at verse 38. For in the days that they uh, that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving into marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What Jesus is referring to is that it's going to be like the days of Noah in what way? 
and the, and the sense that they didn't know it was coming. They were just going on with their lives. Nobody was thinking about it. And boom, it, it happens. It happens. All right. So that's what he's comparing it to. And so this is, in a sense, telling you to do what? To be alert, right? Yes? Okay. He continues that concept, verse 40. Then shall be two in the field. The one shall be taken, the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord doth come. Now, I believe many of these warnings are in reference to what? 70 AD, right? 70 AD. Many of these are warnings about 70 AD. And, and so, but the key is be alert, be alert. You're getting a theme, right? It's going to come. You're not going to know. Be alert. Pay attention. Pay attention. Verse 43, but know this, that if the good men of the house had known and what, what, uh, and, and what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also Ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Are you getting a theme? Be ready, be ready, be alert, be ready. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom the Lord hath made ruler over his household, to give them meat in due season? Let me read that again. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom the Lord hath made ruler over his household, to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find, find, shall find so doing. Verily I say unto you that ye shall make him ruler over all his goods. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delayeth in his coming and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looketh not for him and in an hour when he is not aware of and shall cut him asunder and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Once again, he's just stating the same concept like 50 different ways. And what's the concept? You don't know when? but be ready. You don't know when, but be ready, all right? So we're getting a basic understanding, correct? Now we come to chapter 25. What precedes this passage that we've just read about in judgment? What's the first thing? What does he do in verse... Hang on. Uh, how about verses one through maybe... Well, what does he start off with? Parable, right? And the and and shall the kingdom of uh, and then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom and five of them were wise and five of them were foolish they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps while the bridegroom tarried they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all the virgins, all those virgins, rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there be not enough for us and you. But you go, go ye therefore to them that sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, they that were ready went in with him in the marriage, uh, unto uh, him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Once again, what's the theme? 
Be ready, be ready, be ready, be ready. Like every one of these little, whether it's a parable or ever how Jesus is illustrating it, it's the same concept. Like it's almost painful how many times it's being repeated, is it not? Verse uh, 11, afterwards came also the other virgin saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. I mean, I, I, I cannot tell you how many times that's being repeated. Like, it's just the same thing. Now, we come to the next part. For the kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country, who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods, and said unto, and, and unto the one he gave five talents, unto another two, to another one, to every man according to his several ability, and straightforward took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went and traded the same and made them other five talents. The likewise, he that had received two gained another two. But he that received one went and digged in the earth and hid the Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of the servant cometh and he reckoned with them. So he that had received five talents came and brought other five talents, saying, Lord, thou, uh, thou deliverest unto me five. Behold, I have gained beside them five talents more. The Lord said unto him, Well done, you good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. He that received two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest uh, unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. He said unto them, unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Then he which had received the one came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown and gathering where thou hast not strawed. And I was afraid and went and hid thy talent in the earth. Lo, there hast, there thou hast that is thine. His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not, and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchange, and then at my coming I would have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him, give it unto him which hath ten talents, for unto every one that hath shall be given, and he shall have abundance, but from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. Cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So immediately what precedes this, this, the passage that we've already read today is another story or another parable of what happening? Judgment. And the judgment, once again, is based off what? What you do and what you don't do. The same concept precedes it, right? It's another judgment based off where this is a common theme throughout the New Testament. So let me just make this very clear, all right? So before we even go any further, I know this we're doing a lot of reading here, but this is okay. It's helping us get the context. This is very important. So many times within maybe the non-Catholic world, the Protestant world, we, whenever we see or confronted with anyone using the Bible to teach something that seems like a very works-based system, we're very, we're very quick to almost act like those people are idiots and they don't know how to read. But we need to be very careful with that because the Bible is full of a works-based system and there's no way to... 
We can't deny that, right? Passage after passage after passage after passage. Works, 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 works. The issue has been, how do we understand that? And even within the Protestant world, there's no agreement on how to handle that, is there? You got those within the, within the Protestant world who believe you can lose your salvation. That's a large number of Christians who believe you can lose your salvation. Many of the charismatic denominations believe you can lose your salvation. Church of Christ believes you can lose your salvation. There's plenty, right? And then there's those who believe, okay, you can't lose it, but you got to do certain things to prove you have it. And if you don't do those things, then you never had it, even though you believed you didn't really believe. Because if you really believed, then you would do all the things that we tell you you have to do in order to prove it. And then you've got others who try to more law gospel approach. So there's not even agreement, ladies, not even agreement. So these passages create major problems. I don't know if the preceding story really helps us in, in, in the part, section we're in. I don't know if it really helps. Because to me, it's the same situation, right? Hey, you did this, great, you get in. You didn't do this, guess what? You're, you're cast out. It's the same concept. I wish I could go back to the preceding story and go, I've got it figured out. I don't know if I've got the preceding story figured out. But since we've, we're stuck here in Matthew 25, what, starting in verse 31, our job then is to just do some observational work on 31 and see if we can come up with some kind of clue. All right, so everybody ready? 31. When the Son of Man shall come. All right. Not everyone, but some will say that's an important Greek word. So let's look up the Greek word there for when the Son of Man shall come. Let's look at it and see what the Greek word is and what it could possibly tell us. It may not tell us anything, but it can't hurt to look, right? Okay, I I don't think it will hurt. I don't think it will hurt. It may hurt, but we'll try. Here we go. Here we go. Shall come. Now, I don't even know if this is of, of much help, right? Um, it's this Greek word. Strong's G, 2064, Erchemai. Erchemai. Yeah, Erchemai. Yeah, I think I literally listened to a sermon the other day that said it was a different Greek word. Okay, so... Uh, that there may be some disagreement here, but Archamai, however you pronounce it, it's, um, let's see, what do we have here? It's uh, used 643 times, so that's not, <laughs> that, that's a lot, right? We're not going to look up all of them, right? And guess what? 616 times it's translated as just to come. And then Strong's definition, it's used in the present and imperfect uh, tense. The others grow, light, next, pass, resort, beset. The outline of biblical usage to come, of persons to come from one place to another and use the person's arriving and of returning, to appear, make one's appearance, come before the public, to come into being, arise, come forth, show, its, show itself, find place or influence, be established. None of that is, do you get any, do we get any kind of big clue there? I don't think we get anything. I, I can't remember which source I was listening to, but one source uh, said, I think they said that the Greek word was perusa, perusa, perusa. I can't, I can't, I think, I think that's the Greek word. And they were making an argument that it refers to a conquering king coming to the territory in which he has conquered 
well, man, I could do, I could preach that, right? I could do a lot with that. That's not the Greek word there. I don't know where they got that. Now, if we can find that Greek word, maybe, but it's definitely not right there. Can everyone, can we at least agree with that? I mean, it just says, shall come in his glory. Now, I, so I, I, I don't know where, I don't know where they got that information, but I am not seeing it there. I am not seeing it there. It's something we may, we may want to try to pursue because, because guess what? Why do you think, let me just throw this out there. Let me just throw this concept out there. Let's say that Greek word, right? Let's say that Greek word literally pointed to the idea of a conquering king coming to the territory that he has conquered. Why why would that possibly be beneficial in understanding this section of scripture? See if you guys can figure that out. Why would that be so important if that was 100% accurate or true? It would probably tell us exactly when this judgment would occur. Because if this is a coming king who's coming to the area which he has conquered, then this would be when Jesus has conquered everyone and he's getting ready to set up his kingdom, which would put it somewhere between the end of Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. Because what happens in Revelation 19? We went through this before. We had this happen to us before. Well, everyone look at Revelation 19. Yeah, we had this conversation before. Revelation, and he comes and does a whole lot of people die? A whole lot of people die? Doesn't it, is, is that passage, does it refer to the birds coming, being called to, to the feast? I don't know if it's in Revelation 19 where that happens, but. Yeah, okay, right? Yeah, all these people are going to be destroyed, right? Okay, and then in chapter 20, what happens in chapter 20? Well, you have the establishment of what we refer to as the millennial reign. Christ comes to reign. Now go back to uh, Matthew 25. What happens in verse 31? They set up a, does it mention a throne? Yep, there you go. All right, so... So if the Greek word there gave the idea, which I've heard at least preached in one, I don't even know which thing I was listening to. Hey, this is the Greek word that refers to a king who comes back to the territory for which he has conquered. Well, Revelation 19 has him conquering everything. And then Revelation 20 has him setting up the throne. And you can like, boom, this judgment happens right at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, right? Now I've got a good place to put it. The only problem is that Greek word that we just looked at doesn't help us in any way, shape, or form. I wish they would tell me where they got that Greek word from because I would love it, right? Because, man, that would be great. So once again, what does this demonstrate? No, it it demonstrates you don't believe any sermon that you ever hear, okay? It believes you have to check everything, okay? Now, maybe we're going to stumble across something that will give that idea, but that didn't. That didn't, all right? Does that make sense? All right. Well, that, yeah, we, we definitely did not see it there, right? I, I, I keep checking to make sure I've got the right Greek word, but it's, 
It's right there. Verse 31, antilinear. When shall come the Son of Man, right? Okay, and like I'm looking at all the Greek words. I don't see anything that would have the parousia type, uh, anything that even looks like that. There's nothing. There's nothing. And, and again, the Greek word is, remember, hang on, I can go back to, yeah, here we go. It is. Strong's G, 2064, Erchemai. Right. That's not anything dealing with parousia. Nothing along those lines, right? So I wish it was. I wish it was. But now that now you know, that bothers me. You know why it bothers me? That, gives, that takes away a possible big clue. So this I cannot. This is so important. Listen, you got this. Is, this is like hermeneutics 101. When you listen to a sermon or anything, and they give you some definition, you're like. Whoa, that fits perfectly. Don't, don't go with it just because it sounds good. Sometimes what we have to be willing to do is we have to sometimes be willing to embrace the confusion versus pursuing a simple answer. It's better to have confusion than a simple answer. Does that make sense? Right, well, that's, I know that's another good point. You would think, right? Yeah, I, maybe maybe it works. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look for other clues. We'll look for other clues and see, all right? But we do know that he, uh, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him. Now, let's do this. Go to Revelation 19. Is there anything in Revelation 19 that seems to indicate angels are possibly coming with him? We'll at, least, we'll at least go along with that. That's a, good, that's a good question. That's a good approach. Yeah, can we... Yeah, you kind of want to make that angels, right? Yeah, I, I think I think that's I think it's fair. I think it's a fair ar- argument, right? I mean, we, we we could possibly do a little bit of work to try to demonstrate that, but I think that's a pretty good idea. I think it's a pretty good idea. All right, I don't think put it this way. It's it's better than nothing. All right, so let's do this according to the commentary written by Sarah Danzler. Okay, that's the Sarah Danzler commentary. Everyone online, you should buy a copy. Send me $50 and I'll send you nothing, but okay. But this is what we should do. According to Sarah's concept is the angels in Matthew 25, 31 could possibly be then connected to Revelation 19 when Jesus comes with the army of heaven. Okay, that could be. And we do know in Matthew 25, 31, he does set up what? Throne, Right? Go to Revelation 20. Is the word throne or thrones mentioned in Revelation 20? Okay, well, hey, that's, that's not perfect, but at least it's thrones. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying thrones are set up. Yeah, it's not perfect. It's not perfect. But 
That's something, right? No way. But what they're reigning with him, that means someone is reigning, and that t- tends to set up the idea of a throne, right? Or a kingdom. Okay, so I'm not saying it's perfect. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, all right. So we have a little bit there. Then, and before him shall be gathered all nations. Now, this is where we need to figure this word out, right? I listened to another sermon, and they made a huge deal about the word nations. They made their whole sermon about one One thing I listened to made it all about the parousia, Jesus coming, and this is a king returning. And then another sermon was like, nations, that's the key to understanding this. Well, let's look up the word nations. Let's look up the word nations. Maybe I need to go to the next verse, because there it is, okay? Let's look up the word nations. The Greek, or the Greek word for nations is... What do you think? Strong's G, 1484, ethnos. 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 Now, what, what does that word sound like? Ethnic. Ethnicity, right? Ethnos. All right? It's used how many times? 164 times. 93 times it refers to Gentiles. 64 times nation. Five times heathen. Two times people. Ethnos. A race, uh, as of the same habit, tribe, especially foreign, non-Jewish, one usually by implication pagan, gentle, gentle, Gentile, heathen nation. So typically, this refers to whom? The non-Jews, the Gentile nations. Now, that's possibly important, right? Right? Because if it's a judgment upon Gentile nations, then it's a judgment upon the nations and how then they treated whom? I think then, I think the Israel part comes majorly into play here. Personally, personally. But I could be wrong. All right? So, we could argue this. That the Son of Man is going to come in His glory with His angels. He's going to set up a throne. That, that's just, look, of all this, let's, let's at least establish this. And I know we're out of time. Verse 31. Can we establish that 31 may be the one verse that is the easiest to comprehend? We may not know the timing, but we can understand the basic elements here. What are the basic elements in 31? Son of man will come with angels and set up a throne. That's dogmatically, we can be dogmatic about that, right? We got to find something we can be dogmatic about. We know that in verse 32, that he's going to gather the nations, all nations. And we believe, at least according to the Greek word, that that primarily, most likely refers to whom? Gentiles. At least we feel pretty confident it does. And there we'll have to stop. All right, we didn't get very far. We didn't get anywhere anywhere close to where we need to go. But we are trying our very best, are we not? We're trying our very best, and we'll see what we can come up with, and we'll do that in the next hour. Let's pray. Lord God, we come before you. Lord, we thank you for the rich history of the liturgical calendar and the lectionary. 
We are grateful for such a treasure that is still available to us. I pray that we will utilize it to the best of our ability in the year before us. We will try to look at each passage carefully and try to understand what it means and not try to force our own understanding upon it, but let it shape our understanding and forgive us for when we mishandle your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,